0: Soldiers know what it means to keep the faith, a character trait valued in others given the grim realities of fighting on distant battlefields. Today's guests know the bond born of shared battlefield experience and can help us understand what recent Hollywood portrayals get right and what they get wrong. They are Shafo Sahil and Matt Waters, this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to A Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutus from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also at Salve's Pell Center. This week, we're joined by Matt Waters, a U.S. Army veteran who deployed to Afghanistan in 2020, as well as being a member of the board of directors of the nonprofit organization No One Left Behind. Joining us also is Shafo Sahil, who worked as an interpreter for Matt and his unit in Afghanistan and now lives and works in the United States. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us today. And before we get started, we should note that Matt's views are exclusively his own. But really, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us, Jim. Uh, You know, so we wanted to talk about this experience of uh, service members and their interpreters and the bond that grows between them. And our point of entry for this was actually Guy Ritchie's film, The Covenant. Uh, so, Matt, you've served, uh, you've worked with interpreters uh, in, in a war zone. Uh, what what was your takeaway? What was your impression of the film The Covenant?
1: I loved it. Um, I mean, it's a Guy Ritchie movie. It's got a lot of shooting. Um, it's fiction. Just want to be very clear about that. Um, but I think it beautifully tells uh, the story, which, you know, Shapo and I know quite well, um, which is that bond that develops through going through, combat together, especially when you're in two different worlds, right? So I came from the United States, you know, Shapo was from Afghanistan, but he wasn't necessarily from a a combat zone in Afghanistan. And we went through that together and you develop a bond um, when you go through something like that. And that bond doesn't end at the end of the experience. It continues throughout life. And the movie
0: really tells that well. Um, So I, I really enjoyed it. And Shafo, you uh, worked as an interpreter for the U.S. military in Afghanistan. Uh, What do you think that the film got right, and what do you think it got wrong?
2: Uh, I think the whole idea that the movie has is uh, on a true base uh, story. Because uh, like when I was working as an interpreter, I was also trying not to just translate. I was trying to help the forces... Uh, with the showing them the culture of that area that we are going, we were like different uh, languages, different cultures, and the movie was showing all those uh, the true uh, image of the of the um, work of the of the, as an interpreter. So the movie shows the reality and it shows like how the interpreters work hard uh, and they, how they help the U.S. forces in Afghanistan.
1: So I think there's one scene uh, that really stuck out to me where Jake Chillenhall talks to the interpreter and the interpreter is saying, you know, there's more to this story than you might understand. And uh, Jake, who's a U.S. Um, Special Forces Sergeant, Master Sergeant, says, I just want you to translate. Right? Translate is transactional. I want you to say hi and you tell me how to say it in Pashto. Um, but what the interpreter says is, I'm actually here to interpret, which means there's a lot of subtleties. Um, that I'm gonna pick up and help you understand, which is much different. And the story um, that, you know, Chapeau and I have is definitely one like that. And that I think the movie does very well.
0: The movie also really makes a point of uh, demonstrating and portraying the process of building confidence between uh, two people who are sort of forced into the situation uh, really by uh, circumstance and orders, right? Um, So can you talk a little bit about that, uh, Chapeau, about uh, building confidence with the team that you that you that you worked with yes
2: uh so as as i said before like my job was to to translate but during the mission like we were all one team and we were doing everything together so during the mission i was not thinking about that I should just translate. Sometimes we were having injuries and I was having blood on my back and I was having some guns and also all the important things that our team needed. So uh, the movie was showing all these things that as an interpreter, you were just not only translating, you are working like, as I said before, like we had different kinds of situations, like we were uh, uh, we were having uh, ammunitions, we were having the blood with ourselves. If there was any injuries, I was helping the medics to carry the injuries also.
1: Mm. And so, that blood, just to, um, it's basically we would carry spare blood in case any of us got hurt. And so somebody has to carry all that blood. And you know, Chafou would volunteer to do things like that, which was super
0: helpful to the team.
3: Mm. So Chafou, a question for you, actually two questions. What was your background before working uh, with the U.S. military and then what inspired you to work with the U.S. military?
2: Yeah, that's a nice question. Uh, When I was a child, I was a school student in like 2023 or uh, sorry, 2003 or 2004. I was going to school. So I was I, could, I I was seeing the U.S. Army the forces. The, they were coming to our village. They were coming to our streets, and they were having the interpreters. As a kid, I was meeting with them, and they were giving me a lot of love. They were giving us like the chocolate and water, and I could see the interpreters working with them together. So from childhood, I just wanted to work with the U.S. forces. And then my when I grew up and I started a te- started teaching as an uh, I started. Uh, teaching at private schools, like as an English teacher. So I was always trying to work as an interpreter and help the U.S. forces and the previous Afghan government forces.
3: Did you have any fears or concerns as you worked with the uh, American military? I mean, you talked about seeing combat, you talked about blood. There, there must have been some part of you that had some concerns or fears or, or maybe not. Tell us about that. So the,
2: I didn't have any concern because I, I believed in democracy and I believe that the Taliban and the ISIS are the terrorists and this is the help that I'm helping my country also and I wanted to free the, the I wanted to free my country from those terrorists.
0: Hey, Matt, you uh, you mentioned already the sort of the power of the bond that forges that that's forged uh, between people who serve in harm's way together. Can you expand on that a little bit and talk to us a little bit about, uh, from a more personal perspective than what we saw in the film, what was that experience like for you and the kind of bond that, that you felt formed uh, with, with Shafo and the other, the other men that you served with in combat?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, my wife works in a hospital, and she used to work in a trauma ward, and um, she calls them trauma buddies. Um, and she had deployed to Afghanistan years ago as a nurse as well. And uh, I think that's actually a good way of thinking about it. Um, it's true for Chapo and I, obviously going through combat. It's true on um, you know my team as well, all the different soldiers that I worked with. When you go through something really hard, that's quite traumatic. Um, there's just a different depth to the bond that develops um, because you see kind of people's true colors. You see when they really stand up for you. You see you know what they're willing to put on the line um, to help you in that moment, and. Um, there's really nothing else like it. Um, to know that you can depend on somebody uh, to that level is uh, incredibly uh, meaningful, and it doesn't you know, fade over
3: time. So Matt, I kind of put the same question to you that I did to Shafo. You must have had concerns about your own safety. I mean, every, every soldier who goes into war does. Talk about that and, and how you dealt with that and, and how you have dealt with that since combat.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I definitely had fears, you know, but in the moment, you don't really allow yourself to experience them. Um, It's more after, you know, you have kind of the shock of what you went through and before when you have the anxiety of what you're about to go through. Um, But in the moment, you're kind of just thinking about the next task that you have to complete. And that's, I think, how a lot of soldiers process it um, is that they kind of compartmentalize. Compartmentalizing is pretty... um, normal for people who are managing through crisis. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, probably the scariest thing for me personally was driving down the street and just seeing all these different different colored patches of dirt or, you know, bags of trash that could be signals of an IED, and just constantly having to, to accept that that could be, you know, the explosion um, that would, uh, you know, affect you for the rest of your life. And you're just going to have to go through that zone because you don't have time to check everything. And that was pretty nerve-wracking, but you still have to just say, okay, all I have to do is drive, right? I just have to drive safely. I have to get to the next point and that's what I have to focus on. Um, but the downside of compartmentalizing is your body still has to process those emotions. And so if you don't do it when the kind of crisis is happening, you will do it later on. Um, and you know, for some people that develops into PTSD, for other people that develops into what they call PTG, uh, post-traumatic growth, um, But you definitely, you can't ignore your body's uh, need to process that emotion, but how you process it um, can make a real difference for the effect it has on you afterwards. And uh, I was fortunate in that my wife had kind of gone through that experience beforehand and she was able to coach me through kind of how to do it in a very healthy manner. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely, you know, struggled with just the intensity of that emotion afterwards. I think everybody does.
3: So Matt, can you kind of expand on that? I mean, obviously you come back from war, everyone who comes back from war brings part of that war back with them. We've had other guests on the show who have talked about what you were just mentioning, PTSD. Some have had successful outcomes and some have not. Just give us a general overview of of what is happening now to veterans of uh, Afghanistan. Um, And also Iraq, Uh, you must know many of them and you certainly know the field. And and of course your wife, as you mentioned, is in in that uh, arena as well, or that line of work.
1: Yeah, I think, um, again, everybody processes it a little bit differently, um, but everybody does process it. Um, You can't go through something like that and not experience intense emotion, not all of it's bad. You know, there's a a thrill to combat as well. Um, There's, um, you know, a sense of adventure to going on a deployment with uh, people that you really care about and to accomplishing a mission that matters for the country. I mean, all of that's very positive. Um, But when you go through very intense combat situations, you can also have kind of negative side effects. Um, And I think, uh, you know, I think it's Ben Tal Shahar, who's a professor at um, Harvard who says There's only two people who don't have negative emotions. It's either, um, you know, sociopaths or psychopaths, um, and it's people who have passed away. So if you have negative emotion, it's good to realize that that's a positive. You're not a psychopath, and you're alive. Um, And uh, you have to acknowledge that that emotion is just going to exist. The next thing, though, um, I think for veterans to, to work on is, you know, reminding themselves of why they went through that experience and that that negative emotion um, or just intense emotion is not necessarily bad over the long run it's just a, a necessary byproduct um, doing things that really matter to them again finding that community finding purpose um, you know being healthy uh, with good sleep um, you know working out uh, eating healthy all of these things really matter um, to kind of process those emotions in a Productive way after you go through combat. And the VA, you know, um, the services, the Department of Defense, they put a lot of energy into helping people um, acknowledge what the path should look like afterwards. Gone are the days post Vietnam where you're expected to come back and kind of just deal with it on your own. That leads to alcoholism, that leads to a whole bunch of negative things. Um, There is a real science to how you deal with the intense emotions of combat and. You know turn it into a productive thing for you afterwards hopefully that helps a little bit
0: that's that's super insightful and super helpful uh sahil i'm i'm curious you're uh at, at some point you decided that you needed to leave afghanistan and i wonder if you could shine some light on on what ultimately led you to that decision uh to 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 leave to leave the country of your birth
2: yeah uh, actually, I never wanted to leave Afghanistan, but I had to because I and my family were not safe. Uh, after my work was ended because of the COVID-19 in Afghanistan, I went home back and started teaching. And after started teaching, I started teaching, uh, uh, the Taliban started threatening to death, and they came to the school where I was teaching. They also came to my house. And then they took the country. When they took over the country, I went on hiding so I, I didn't have any other choice uh, except to leave Afghanistan. So Matt and his team members, they contacted me and they helped me with the evacuation. Uh, on the 16th of August, I had to leave my, my house with my family, with my two kids and a pregnant wife. And we went to the airport and we were at, outside of the airport for a week trying to get into the airport. And then uh, with the help of, uh, like I had my daughter she had a red shirt. Uh, he, she had a red dress, and I put her on my shoulder. And I was sending that picture to Matt and the team members, so the soldier can come out and they can recognize me. And that really helped me. And that's what, that's that's how we got it to the airport, and we left Afghanistan.
0: That's remarkable. Uh, it's, it's it's remarkable. You know, I, I I um the the movie ends with the rescue. Uh, and Hollywood always makes it a lot neater than reality. So when you get to the airport, what happens next? What's that process like then from getting to, uh, you, you're, you're flown out of the country. Where do you go, and, and what's the process of, of resettlement like for you in the United States?
2: Yeah, so as soon as we got to the airport, actually, we didn't have any passport. We didn't have any visa. And I knew, we never thought this would happen, but at the airport, actually, we we felt a little bit safe, and we thought now that we are leaving Afghanistan, so there is no danger for us. And uh, after we flew from Afghanistan, we flew directly to the uh, to Doha, to Qatar. And in Qatar, we were there for a week, like three or four days, in a hangar, in a big hangar, and we were de- we do it, we did all the screening and all the fingerprints, uh, all these important things. And after that, they took us to the Washington. So we landed in Washington, D.C. on the 26th of August, 2021. And then I didn't know where to go, but uh, the government, the, the forces, they took us to the camp and we were in the camp for two months and after that we didn't know also where to go because i i didn't know anyone in the us i didn't have any friend i didn't have any family so the only person that i knew that was mad that i had worked with him closely and he was i was asking him like okay now what would i do how, how can i find a house what uh, i don't know what to do so he helped me he he took me to his parents house and right now i'm still living with his parents and they gave me the opportunity to do some IT trainings, and they gave me the opportunity to get my driving license. They gave us the opportunity for my kids to go to school. So currently, after doing all these important trainings and these things like I did, uh, right now I'm working for a company and uh, my kids are going to school, my wife is learning English, and we are all happy because we are safe now.
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's Popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce story in the public square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Selva Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me, as he does every week in the co-host chair, is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guests this week are Shafo Sahil, who found refuge in the United States after working for the U.S. military in Afghanistan, and Matt Waters, a U.S. Army veteran who served in Afghanistan in 2020, working with Sahil. Matt is also a member of the board of directors of a nonprofit called No One Left Behind, which is working to make sure that the United States keeps the faith with those friends and allies who served alongside our armed forces on the battlefield.
3: Chaffaut, you're happy and you're safe now, which of course is a great thing. So we're talking about you and, and your immediate family, but you clearly left behind other relatives or, or family members, friends, neighbors acquaintances how are they doing do you have any communication with them and and what is, is it like to leave i mean basically your whole life behind somewhere
2: uh as i mentioned before i never wanted to leave afghanistan and it's not easy to leave my homeland where i grew up but i had to because i was targeted by the taliban mm. and uh, the day i was leaving that was a very difficult day of my life my mom my dad everybody was crying but they were pushing me because they were also didn't want me to stay there they didn't want me to be at home just staying at home day and night so right now i i do have a contact with my family members until now they're doing well but i'm still concerned about them because the situation is not good and it's very dangerous for them to
0: Hey, Matt, uh, you know, Hill's story is really remarkable uh, because you know, your support, your family support, uh, he's got opportunities that have, uh, that have uh, that set him up, right, to, 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 to sort of live the American dream, as it were. What, how common is that? Uh, and, 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 and did you have any appreciation of the challenges that he would face once he arrived in the United States?
1: I don't think it's very common um, which is unfortunate and I just want to say I think my parents are complete Saints for letting Sahil uh, his wife and three kids stay in their house for almost the last two years I'll give you Um, an
0: amen it's a beautiful it's a beautiful amazing story yeah it really is it really is
1: Um, I think the um,
0: sad truth is
1: for a lot of people who have come here they kind of feel stranded after um, you know just a couple of months and what we realized pretty quickly um, with Sahil was that without having some level of sponsorship, he was going to be, you know, potentially without a home. He didn't have a job. He had a high school um, degree, and that didn't lead to a lot of employment opportunities in the U.S. I had no idea how difficult that journey would be, um, and I'm incredibly, um, you know, blown away and impressed by how Chapeau um, has approached it all—the resilience, the determination. Uh, the persistence through all the struggle but i didn't realize you know the journey it would take to claim asylum in the united states Um, i didn't realize it would take him a year um, to be able to find a a career that could be an entry point into a middle class upward mobile um, opportunity i didn't realize that housing would be such a challenge um, for somebody who doesn't have a credit history um, who doesn't have previous addresses in the united states Um, He's just moving out basically next week. Um, And uh, we had to go through probably 10 different applications because apartments were not comfortable taking on somebody um, without those previous credentials. Mm. Um, So it's been a real learning experience for us both, but uh, he's just done an incredible job with it.
3: So Matt, uh, you, you, you are both involved with an organization called No One Left Behind. And in fact, Matt, you're on the board of directors. Tell us about the organization, what it does, and how it came to be.
1: Yeah, and the organization has been around for a while. It's gone through a couple of different iterations. Right now, it's focused on essentially its core mission, which is making sure that we uphold the promise to people like Shafo, um, who we told that if they were in dangerous way after working with us honorably, that we would be able to help them get to someplace safe. right? And that's with the Special Immigrant Visa Program. Um, And so No One Left Behind is still focused on that. So far, we've gotten 2,500 former interpreters out of Afghanistan, some of them to the United States, some to places like Pakistan, where they're waiting for a visa to come to the United States. Um, The second part, though, is we're focused on helping people like Shafo with the next journey. So in the United States, um, going through all those challenges I just talked about. Um, And so we're helping them go through job retraining. Um, or, you know, language lessons, or trying to get, you know, a license, um, a home, things that are necessary to be a productive taxpaying member of society. Um, And then the last thing that No One Left Behind works on is essentially advocating to fix this problem legislatively so that uh, it's not a continual issue, which matters, uh, obviously, because it's the right thing to do, but also just because, you know, as a Green Beret, uh, work in Army Special Forces, you cannot do the mission without an interpreter very often. And we can't really ask interpreters to work with us um, without this kind of a program because it's so dangerous. And so we need to make sure that this is fixed.
3: Are, are you focused uh, strictly on uh, refugees from Afghanistan or are there other countries and in, in war zones or previous war zones that the uh, people you work with
1: so we're working um, to essentially help the Special Immigrant visa program incorporate countries like Syria, Somalia, Niger, where essentially we are conducting very similar missions, and we use interpreters all the time. But right now we're focused on the special immigrant visa applicants, which technically exist from uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, where we had Title X you know uh, combat engagements.
0: You know, so we had uh, a former extreme sports skier. Uh, um, Jamie, Mo Jamie Crazy. Mo Crazy on the show recently, and she talked I mean, about uh, an investment that the state of Utah had made in her recovery after she'd suffered a traumatic brain injury. And the way she put it was, look, the government could either pay for uh, five years of recovery or they could pay for 60 years of essentially, you know, uh, 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 her living on the dole, right? Um, it sounds to me similarly that, the, that not only do we have an obligation uh, to the people who served with our armed forces in harm's way. Uh, but there's a modest investment that we could make up front that would pay huge dividends, not just for those individuals, but for the society as a whole with contributing members, taxpaying members of society. Is, is that the, the basic, is that is that parallel uh, uh, right in your mind?
1: I think so. Um, I mean, I just look at Chapo's example,
0: right, by my parents
1: and... Um, you know, a couple of other folks volunteering to help him out over the course of the last year and a half slash two years. Um, He has a job that pays a middle-class income. He has a new career um, with upward mobility. Um, His kids are enrolled in school. He's no longer on social services, um, and he has savings that are allowing him to eventually, you know, work towards getting a house. And so I see that upfront investment as paying dividends later on, and uh, I wish he wasn't a unique example, but hopefully no one left behind can help others kind of replicate that um, concept so that uh, they can stand on their own pretty quickly afterwards if you stand by them throughout that process.
0: So Shafo, what is your life like now?
2: Uh, I'm uh, I'm doing great now because uh, in the beginning, as I mentioned, I didn't have a driving license. I was using Uber to go somewhere. Life was very difficult for me. So right now I got my license and I'm working for a great company, Pfizer, as an IT support. Like, uh, in my case, they are learning English. In the beginning, uh, I had to translate for my kids also. But now my son is learning and my son can speak English and now I don't need to translate for him. My wife, like she never went to school before and now she is learning English. So life is getting easier and uh, we, we are doing great.
0: That's outstanding. Hey, uh, Matt, uh, we got about 30 seconds left here. I know you did some work too with the International Rescue Committee on this. What's their uh, role in all of this?
1: Um, So the International Rescue Committee is one of the eight resettlement agencies that works cooperatively with the State Department to resettle immigrants when they come to this country, or refugees, rather. Um, And uh, my employer, McKinsey and Company, basically sponsored a pro bono effort to work with the International Rescue Committee um, to help them. And kind of the advent of all these Afghans coming here back about two years ago, it was just an influx of people. And so we helped them think through, you know, after COVID, the housing market was very different. The job market was very different. And we helped them think through kind of some of the new ways that you can get people plugged into new careers like chefo with IT um, and what areas kind of uh, are very helpful for refugees to live in given social services, given um, kind of housing and communities and things like that. Um, it's a fantastic organization. They're still very hard at work at that mission. Um, and no one left behind is doing very similar work, but, uh, for a very specific subset and not at the scale of the
0: International Rescue Committee. Well, you're both doing remarkable things and we're both, and we're grateful to both of you for your service and for spending some time with us today. Shafo Sahil, Matt Waters, thank you so much. The group, again, it's No One Left Behind. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on social media or visit PellCenter.org. We can always catch up on previous episodes. He's Wayne, I'm Jim, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.